Well, good morning to you all. I was very worried this morning when I saw a lot of people here at quarter to ten. You know, that's just not the Baptist thing. You must come at one minute to ten, and in future we will be keeping a register. Well, unsurprisingly, our text for today is from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, We're going to start in chapter 12 and end with chapter 16 verse 17 ordinarily I'd say turn there now but obviously we're not going to read all of that today and I will be putting the pertinent bits up on the overheads and hopefully they work Um, if you've been reading ahead as suggested you might be a bit alarmed at this point because in this section we start a long bit where Moses begins to deliver a set of instructions on how to do pretty much anything. And some of them are slightly weird. For example, 1421, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I bet you're wondering what I was going to do with that. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) We won't be going through them one by one. Instead, we'll be looking at some of the main themes as they have relevance for us today. So... What is the principal theme? I want to suggest that what we're looking at in this book is a kind of job description. And I'm sure that most of us of a working age here will have encountered one of those at some point in their lives. And there are literally thousands of ways to write one. But broadly, it's a document that hopefully we do get from our employer which enables us to say, that's not in my job description. Actually, it tells us what we have to do in the job, what we have to know to do the job, and how we will know if we have done the job well or not. Here in Deuteronomy, we have Israel's job description, and at this point, it's really starting to drill down to the smallest detail. Now, after the terrible silence, the last time I asked this, I'm almost afraid to try again, but I'm going to keep asking until I'm sure that everybody's got it because it's still our job description today. So, do you remember what Israel's job for God was? Yes, to tell the nations. It was to show the world what a proper relationship with the one true sovereign creator God looked like. And that hasn't changed at all, has it? That's what Christians are supposed to be doing every day today. In loving and fearing God in the proper way, as we go about our daily lives, we draw others to Him. And since we do share this work with Israel, we will find that if we look into this Old Testament book and its fellows, we will certainly find that their job description is very helpful to us too. So don't just read those last bits in the Bible, folks. God is consistent in His character, and so is His written revelation to us. All scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, scripture tells us what we need to know to do our good works. And that's job description language, isn't it? So where's that job description going today? Well, in the broadest sense, it has to do with loyalty to our employer. 
We will see that God takes the first commandment of the ten very, very seriously, that we shall have no other gods before him. And he needs to be serious because we are pretty good at wandering off to follow idols if we have half a chance. And consequently, he expects his people Israel here and us today to be exactly as serious as him in the way we in turn serve him. And exactly how serious is demonstrated by the way that some of the stuff we will read here seems extraordinarily cruel and unnecessary. So, I think we ought to get that out of the way immediately. One of the accusations that non-believers make is that the Old Testament God is so bloodthirsty and violent that he's completely unacceptable. And I think it would be dishonest of me to say that even as a mature Christian, I too don't feel uncomfortable at times reading stuff like this. And I imagine I'm not alone in the room. The fuel for these accusations and feelings isn't too hard to find. In just this text, we can read of entire nations being dispossessed by force, false prophets being stoned to death, the requirement to kill your very closest relatives if they do suggest idol worship. The utter destruction of complete cities, their inhabitants and their possessions for the same sin. So, how do we explain that? Well, it comes down to the connection between comparison and compromise. If I am trying to decide if I will accept or reject a course of action, whether recommended or required, I will first compare it to what I've experienced before and then decide how much or how little I will fall in line. For example, I'm driving down the road. The law says that speed limit for this bit of road is 100 kilometers an hour but I know there are hardly any cops around here and I've got away with it before and when it comes down to it, I'm prepared to pay an $80 fine. So I'll compromise. I'll drive at 110. Well, I'm sure that's a familiar chain of thoughts for us in many similar and different circumstances. And the problem is that it is so familiar and so often used, we start to think that God must be the same as us and so we can use it on his stuff too. But... In this respect, he isn't at all like us. The words God is righteousness fall, fall easily from our lips, but I, I, I believe we fail to recognize the fullness of what that really means. First of all, let me give you the formal definition of righteous. It means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right explore that a bit God always acts in accordance with what is right always and accordance are the key words and they mean that God never ever swerves the tiniest bit from the line okay so who draws that line well he does he is as the definition says the final standard God does not have to refer to anyone else or check with a higher authority to be absolutely sure that a decision is right or not. There is no one above him to ask because he is supreme in all things. Now you might find that little nonconformist and oppositional bit of yourself saying, well, <laughs> what makes you so special that you can make yourself the boss then? Well, it's okay to ask that question. It's a very human question. 
Now, obviously, I don't have the time right now to support all the claims I'm going to make, but I promise that you can find clear evidence for all of them in Scripture. And perhaps you might want to argue that relying on a book of fairy stories written by primitives thousands of years ago offends your intellectual abilities. My friend, I would respectfully suggest that you apply said intellect to objectively reviewing the vast body of hard evidence that confirms that the Bible is in fact exactly what it says it is. So what does give God this authority to draw any particular line and then to require all of creation to tow it? Well, firstly, it follows that creation requires a creator and that consequently such a person must naturally have certain rights and responsibilities over what they have created. God, the Lord, capital Lord, Yahweh, created everything out of nothing. He determined how everything looked, how it behaved, where it would be. He set an order to all things, the basic rules for life, the universe, and everything. And we have a study that studies that. We have a science that studies that. It's called physics. And somehow, and unfortunately, we've come to believe that rather than exposing and explaining the wonders of God's handiwork, it now denies it. What foolishness. As science peers so far today into the very tiniest parts of creation, how is it that it misses the most obvious explanation that its wonder and scale and complexity and interconnectedness could never have just happened. Pfft. How do they fail to see that someone made it? That was God. He did all of it. And therefore, as its owner and maker, he alone has the right to draw the line between right and wrong. Moreover, Scripture informs us that God isn't like a landlord living somewhere else warm while we freeze in his poorly maintained house. No, God remains intimately connected and involved with every single part of his creation. In fact, Scripture informs us that his power and presence is what keeps everything in existence. If he were to withdraw, all would collapse and disappear in an instant. So, not only does God have the right to have drawn the line, he has the right to keep doing so. He will never, ever be outdated or irrelevant. Well, rights are one thing. How about abilities? It's true for humans that although one may have the right to do something, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have the ability. For example, I have the right to get on a trampoline and attempt a triple back somersault with a half twist. But what do you think will actually happen when I try? Well, I think one of those big yellow vans with the flashing lights and the b-ball thing will have to come and take me to A&E. And possibly the person I land on too. But how about God then? Is he able? Scripture tells us that as far as ability is concerned, God is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. Long words, but they just mean that he is everywhere, that he sees and knows everything, and he can do anything about that. 
Now, just quickly in case you want to ask me if God is so, can he make a rock that's so heavy that's impossible for him to lift? Don't be silly. The answer is no, God will never do anything that is inconsistent with his character. He knows that such a thing is just foolishness and he would never do it. But God's supreme abilities mean that he is never missing the big picture or the means to do something about that picture. And this guarantees that when he draws that line we're talking about, it is invariably in the right place, allowing for all and any factors concerned. He is always both right and able. Well, hopefully you now agree that on the basis of the evidence given, that it's quite appropriate for God to be righteous. That he must and should be the only defining standard for all human behavior. The thing is, that can't be just left as an interesting fact. Okay, God is righteous, so let's move on to what the All Blacks will do when they lose the final to the Springboks. Oh, wait. They've already lost, haven't they? Understanding God's righteousness absolutely requires that there is action on our part. So where does that start? Well, earlier I spoke about how comparison and compromise are a constant part of our daily decision-making process. On the basis of what we've just learned, we now know what to do about the comparing part. We know what to comp compare to. Rule one, in all cases of decision or indecision, compare our idea to God's standards to know what is right or wrong. Rule two, there is no other rule. So that's easy, Dave. Just go with rule one. But then there's still rule two. Now, we don't really like rule two very much, so you know, we try to wriggle around a bit. While God is never, ever, ever in a position where he is unsure whether something is right to do or not, no matter how unpleasant or uncomfortable the outcome may be, we, on the other hand, well, well, we often set pleasantness and comfort in first place, and so we want to try to slip in little shades of grey that really aren't there. We compromise, for health and safety, of course. At this point, there's a bit of a bumpy patch in the road. It's, it's one thing to understand what God is in nature, but it's another thing entirely to digest that his nature doesn't exist separately from his creation. Like I've said, it's not like God is over there doing his righteous, omnipotent, omniscient thing and we're doing something different over here. Nothing to see here, God. No, the Lord is far more than a passive observer, as I've already said. We must recognize that he not only maintains things, but he also measures them. And from his ruler's result comes both blessing and curses. We must know that when we compromise, we're just asking for that ruler to be applied to us. And we must accept that the most likely outcome could well fall on the curse side of the equation. What does this mean in real life? Well, Deuteronomy was real life, and we're looking at it today. So what does Deuteronomy tell us? It tells us that for Israel and her enemies, the price of compromise is death. Here's a few examples. In chapter 12, verses 29 and 30, Israel is cautioned not to get too curious about how 
and what the nations they displace take as their God because they may well become ensnared along the way. As part of his cautionary speech, Moses is careful to point out that it's God, not Israel, that will win any battles. The language is clearly one of death and destruction. Phrases like, God cuts off before you and they are destroyed from before you, tells us that God is being careful to create a clean slate for his people. And he's, it's clear that he's not doing so just by moving these idol-worshipping nations to one side, but he's doing it by killing them, by destroying them entirely. <laughs> doesn't seem fair to you? Well, hopefully this section does include a description of how these idol worshippers went about said worship. Verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods, for they burn. They burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Just look at that last bit. Aside from the fact that they had chosen to worship other gods, they were thoroughly despicable people. They had compromised on compromise. I mean, the idea, the very idea of sacrificing your precious child to an idol is utterly repulsive, let alone carrying it through to reality. So we should not be surprised that God chose to destroy them, really just because they thoroughly deserved it. And it's always death. If that's how compromise led to death for Canaan, what about compromise by God's people? We have a section here in chapter 13 that details what punishment should be applied to false prophets, close family members, and even entire cities who try to draw the people in, of Israel into the worship of false gods. Death. In the first instances by stoning, in the last by the sword. And you might think that punishing a city's people is enough, that in a resource poor environment, things like buildings and livestock and possessions would be too valuable to destroy. But here, the counsel is for complete annihilation of everything, to the extent that nothing should ever be built there again. That's radical. Perhaps now, we begin to appreciate how very serious God is when it comes to unswerving loyalty from his people. There is absolutely zero compromise on his part when it comes to compromise on their part. So let's name that now for what it is. Compromise is sin, and sin is punishable by death. It's as simple as that. Now, all this death and destruction might be painting a very unpleasant picture of God in your mind, that he's big and scary and mean, and you must follow him because if you don't, you'll be squashed like a bug. And I get that because it sure looks that way here. And why would you want to follow him if he's like that? So I think we need to step back a bit here and look at the big picture. You see, God isn't unbalanced in that way. So far, we've only been looking at how one part of his personality is revealed in this section of Deuteronomy. And in doing so, we might have missed something really important that Moses is saying. And he's saying that whilst God's people can't afford 
to ignore that God is vengeful, vengeful and angry to the point of death towards those who slight his name, they also ought to take note of the quality of these emotions. No one then and no one reading now can ever say that they are at all half-hearted. When God decides to act righteously, he doesn't hold back at all. He applies a full measure. And I'm using that word measure very deliberately because we mustn't ever imagine that God loses control of himself and acts in a wild and thoughtless rage. We can be really, really sure that that, that would never happen. But make no mistake, says Moses, you can clearly see that his measure is mighty. He doesn't mess around when the time comes to act. And I think Moses wants Israel to see that if the Lord is so, then Israel ought to be just as vehement in their response. Is this because God is big and scary and mean in his righteousness? Well, maybe a little because everyone ought to have the proper fear of God. But mostly because if God is all in 100% committed for righteousness, then it follows that he is similarly so in love. My belief is that he is more so inclined towards love than righteousness. And I say this in part because in James 2.13 we read, that mercy triumphs over judgment. And I must hasten to add that it's most immediately in the context of the importance of believers setting mercy over judgment in their dealings with fellow humans. But I'm sure that it is so because it's a reflection of God's character. In addition to this, when I reflect objectively on God's journey with Israel from Egypt to this point here in Deuteronomy, I'm left with an overwhelming sense of blessings rather than curses. Just think what he did. Plagues for the Egyptians, parting the sea, leading them, feeding and watering them, fighting for them in battle, giving them a fruitful land. And in chapter 14, verse 2, Moses affirms Israel's status this way. He says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the people who are on the face of the earth. This is not the language used by a dictator. You miserable puny scum, you owe me everything. Fall into line or be destroyed. No. These are the words of a loving parent, one who has proven themselves over and over and over to be completely true to their word and who has valued and cared for their special treasure beautifully and even when that treasure has not always behaved like a treasure along the way Israel certainly drew on the walls with their crayon and threw their cornflakes on the floor what other signs are there here in Deuteronomy of God's loving character well they're not at all hard to find chapter 15 is full of them verses 1 to 3 at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts, and this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. Isn't that an amazing idea? 
although we don't name it as such, the business of lending and borrowing today turns out to be a kind of legalized slavery when lenders take advantage of vulnerable people. And they're so trapped that they, they can't get out. It's the most awful burden. And it causes severe mental and physical illness. But the truth is that, well, people need to borrow from time to time. And God recognized that need back then, but he certainly did not want financial slavery for his people. And so he puts in place this mechanism for release. And we should also note what the rest of the section says. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother, except when there may be no poor among you. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land, which the Lord your God is giving to possess as an inheritance, only if you can carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. And what's the consequence? You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. Wow, well, as I read this, it seems that if Israel is careful to obey God, they won't even need to worry about writing off debts every seven years. Why? Because there won't be any poor among them. Why? Because God will bless them so much in their inherited land that everyone will have all they need. In fact, they will have so much that other nations will have to come to them for help. That's not scary, God. That's Jehovah Jireh, my provider. How about verses 7 and 8? If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Now, one of the very consistent themes throughout the whole Bible that shows us the love in God's heart is his concern for the poor. And you'll find it in many, many places. And here it is again in Deuteronomy. It never stands alone. By that I mean it's never just something that God is hot on personally, but a concern that he requires his people to share. And so here we have it as part of the ground rules. Israel, God is saying, here's your promised land, Israel, but right off the bat, know that one of the ground rules is that I'm always going to need you to make sure that you look after the poor. I don't think that's words you ever heard from Robert Mugabe. And finally, verses 12 to 15. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor and your winepress. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. See, even slaves must be treated generously. There are some common themes here in this text that show what is really in God's heart. Fairness, concern for your brother and sister, release from debt, 
Generosity to the poor, release from slavery. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I hope it's clear that these passages paint a clear picture for you of a character far different to that angry and vengeful God that I spoke about a while back. The message of Deuteronomy is that the Lord may have a mighty fist, it is true, but he has an even mightier heart for those who love and serve him. So what? That happened 3,400 years ago. Okay, it was a long time ago, but what has changed? Is God still really serious about the first commandment? Is he still really angry when his people worship other gods? Now please bear in mind that today these aren't usually some kind of weird carved image on a stick, but things like sport or business or hobbies that we pour all our emotions and resources into as though they were the only things that gave meaning for our lives. What's the answer? Yes. Is God still as righteous as he was at the time Deuteronomy was written? If so, does he still require punishment for death, for compromises against that righteousness? Yes. Does God still have a special people? Definitely, yes, his special people today are all those who follow Christ, who call Jesus their personal Lord and Savior, who have had all this and all their compromises washed away. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross instead of them to pay the death penalty for compromise against God's righteousness. Does God still love and bless his special people? Yes, yes. That Jesus, as the Son of God, died on a cross for all human sin demonstrates love and blessing beyond any measure. He was innocent. He was God and yet made himself man. He was the injured party because mankind's sin was directly against him. And yet, he had mercy on us and rescued us all. Do his people... His special people have a promised land. Yes, of course they do. And it's more wonderful than the one Israel looked forward to because it's not situated on a fallen creation. It's not reached by crossing the River Jordan, but by crossing from life to death. But actually, it's crossing from life to life. It's paid for not by the blood of animal sacrifice, but by the blood of Jesus there, God's special people will enjoy a recreated world that works like it was supposed to. In the beginning, no pain, no suffering, no war, no sin. And there we will enjoy unfettered access to our God and King, just like it was in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, the way it was supposed to be. When I wrote this, I, I struggled to know what to write next because I just... I just don't have the words to express the wonder and the hope of this promised land. And I also lack the understanding to know why I, like any sinner who is saved by grace, is granted entry there as God's son. But I do know that it is real and genuine for all those who are saved by that same grace. What a promise, what a glory 
What a treasure. What an awesome God. Righteous and loving. If that's the gift and the reward, what is our proper response, I wonder? Well, we have the answer right here in this text. Chapter 16 establishes a system of feasts. Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles. And they have a purpose. The purpose is to call Israel to remember that they were once slaves. But God freed them and blessed them and led them to a promised land. So, remember these things, Israel, says Moses. Listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Keep all his commandments. Do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. It's just the same today. Since we too have been released from slavery to sin, since we too are loved and blessed by God as a special people, since we too look forward to promised land, how can we not do the same as Israel? Remember, not by feasts, but by worship and praise wherever we are. Listen to his voice. Keep his commandments and do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, our God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love and blessing to us. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for his blood. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for the hope and the privilege that it gives us. Lord, I pray that that knowledge would burn in us like a light. And that that light would be seen by all so that we would do the job, that we would fulfill our job description and that others may come to know you as Lord. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.